next Wednesday night, we uh, have a devotional service. We usually do that the Wednesday before Thanksgiving because we have a lot of people traveling. and So rather than try to uh, piece together classes, uh, we just uh, have a general devotional. I hope you'll come for that. And then the following week will be the last week of our uh, study in Second Thessalonians. Chapter 2 of 2 Thessalonians will deal with false teachers and false teaching. And it is one of only, it is only one of several places in the New Testament that warn about false teaching. If you have your Bible, I hope you do, please turn for a moment to Acts 20. Acts 20, and recall with me what Paul said to those Ephesian elders whom he met at Miletus, and we're only going to look at part of this, of course, in verses 29 and 30, he tells them, for I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves, among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Notice how Paul calls these false teachers savage wolves. Not just animals, but the kind that tear and that do destructive things. And he says that they speak perverse things. Or, or think, if you will, we're in 2 Thessalonians. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 4 and, and recall Paul saying to Timothy, chapter 4, verse 1, Now the Spirit, notice, this is not Paul, this is the Spirit through Paul. The Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies in hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. Look at 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 3, and this time verse 13. But evil men and impostors will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. And then in chapter 4 of 2 Timothy and verses 3 and 4, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers and, will, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. Just one more. Look at Second Peter. Second Peter, chapter 2, the beginning of the chapter. But there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you, 
who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them, and bring on themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their destructive ways, because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. And so it, you, you clearly get the picture that before the New Testament closes, that there are multiple warnings about the dangers that would confront Christians concerning false teachers and false teachers and teaching. Why these warnings? Well, because false doctrine or false teaching is destructive. It's not constructive, it's destructive. And if anyone believes a false teaching, he is going to be led away from the truth. And that will result ultimately in either practicing wrong or teaching others to practice wrong. In other words, defending the wrong practice. And how dangerous is that? Well, look in this same 2 Thessalonian letter, chapter 2, which we're going to get to in just a moment, but verse 12. That they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. So how dangerous is it? Well, condemnation awaits those who are following error. Paul could not be content to let false teaching go unchallenged. He had to challenge it. And so he, here to the Thessalonians, he warns, he encourages, he informs them of the truth. And, and that's what needs to be done, not just to curse the darkness, but to light the candle. You need to be able to see what's right. Now, this will be the most difficult section of Thessalonian letters that we study. And in fact, it is considered to be one of the more difficult passages in the New Testament. And so we're going to have to move carefully. <laughs> but but I, I intend to move through this whole chapter if we can. And, and Paul begins chapter 2, says, Now brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus... This is his second coming. He had mentioned this in 1 Thessalonians 4. He had mentioned it in 1 Thessalonians 5. And he mentions it again. It is a predominant doctrine in the Thessalonian letters. Um, we don't know, obviously, if someone had written Paul about this. In other words, someone picked up on what was going on and did they write to Paul to tell him about this or had he just somehow received news that there was a problem? We can't know that for sure, but we do know that somehow Paul is aware that there is a problem. And in verse 2 he says, not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, as though the day of Christ had come. The, the error is this. Someone, or maybe more than one someone, was teaching that the Lord's return 
had already taken place. That, that it was not a future thing, that it had already occurred. And when you first think about that, you say to yourself, it's hard to imagine someone teaching this. Or is it? <laughs> Look at 2 Timothy 2. 2 Timothy 2 and verse 18. He had been talking about in, in 17 about Hymenaeus and Philetus who are of this sort, in other words, like these uh, false teachers, who have strayed concerning the truth, verse 18, saying that the resurrection is already past. And, and there may be a, a connection here if, if Christ's coming had already occurred, then the resurrection would have already occurred too. So they were connected together. Resurrection, second coming, all a part of the same thing. But if you think this is hard to imagine anybody teaching this, then consider the Jehovah Witnesses. Because the Jehovah Witnesses teach that Christ came in 1914. Now, that, that's... That was a prophecy. Incidentally, the first prophecy was he was going to come in 1874. And he didn't come, of course. And so then they said, well, that was a miscalculation. And incidentally, they blamed that somehow on the King James Version. That it was their fault. That they miscalculated this somehow. And so then they said, no, it's 1914. Well, he didn't come visibly in 1914. So what do you do in a case like that? Well, you start teaching that he came invisibly. He really did come. You just didn't see him. Now, that, of course, flies in the very face of what Scripture teaches, that every eye will behold him, that, that the angels who were present in Acts 1 as Christ was going back to heaven told those disciples, this one whom you see going in like manner, you'll see him coming. And so one wonders how could Christ have come invisibly if the scriptures teach that he's coming visibly? Well, obviously it's false doctrine. But it didn't stop them and still doesn't stop them from teaching that. Now Paul encourages them here in verse 2 not to be shaken in mind, not to be upset, not to be taken off track by this teaching. And, and, and he mentions how they could be shaken. He says, either by spirit or by word or by letter as if from us. By, by spirit is an indication of false prophets. If you look at uh, 1 John for just a moment, 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4, beginning verse 1. Beloved, do not believe, notice, every spirit, but test the spirits whether they are of God, notice, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. There's a clear connection there. Test the spirits. Who are, who are the spirits? False prophets. And, and uh, so false prophets could be coming and saying, well, we're going to tell you that Christ has already come. 
or by word, he says, and that would be oral teaching, or by letter. And, and I think this is particularly disgusting because it shows how corrupt these false teachers were, that they were willing to forge letters claiming that those letters were from Paul. That, and of course, if, if you're teaching something false, why not go ahead and lie at the same time? They were obviously liars saying, well, we've got a document from Paul, and that's what Paul says. Paul says, don't be shaken by that. And again in verse 3, let no one deceive you by any means. Now, it, it is not that Paul is uh, fearful that they have been shaken, but he wants to warn them, don't be shaken. And then he explains to them they needed to understand that certain things had to happen or had to occur before the Lord's return. And here's, here's what has to happen. For that day will not come unless the falling away comes first and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition. Two things. There must be a falling away. This, this word that is used here is a Greek word from which we get just a transliteration of the word apostasy. It's, it's almost identical in the Greek, but we use the term apostasy to fall away from. And remember what we saw back in 1 Timothy 4 verse 1. Paul says that the time is coming when there will be a falling away. Paul knew that. How did he know it? By the Holy Spirit. The Spirit expressly says this is going to happen. And the man of sin must be revealed. And we have to be very careful here because Paul does not say, mark this please, Paul does not say that the Lord will return immediately after those two things happen. All he really says is those things have to happen before the Lord comes. No, nobody, and we've talked about this before, nobody knows the time of the Lord's second coming. Uh, Paul didn't know it. Peter didn't know it. No apostle knew it. In fact, Jesus, while he was on the earth, divested himself from that knowledge so, so that he, he would not mislead anybody by saying, it's going to be a long time away, don't worry. And, and men needed to live, as we do, every day as if the coming could occur at any time. Um, but, but note this, the apostasy had not come yet. There will be a falling away. But it's going to come, Paul says. And history shows, of course, that it, that it clearly that it did come. What, what happened was, and you're, if you're familiar with church history, you know this. What happened was that it didn't happen all at once. It was not a matter that suddenly one day everybody was off completely. What happened was that one thing got changed, another thing got changed, a doctrine was added, another doctrine was added, so that within a couple of hundred years after the apostles had died, it was hard to recognize the church as the church because so many things had been added by human beings. But it did happen. 
Now, the man of sin is also called the son of perdition. What's interesting about that is that in John 17 and verse 12, Jesus calls Judas the son of perdition. Son of means belonging to perdition. He is a son or a belonging one to perdition or doom. And, and so if that term was used about Judas, and if it's used here, then I don't think we want to say that it refers to a single person, unless you want to believe that Judas is going to be revealed, which is not going to happen. Now this man of sin is one of the problems that we have because we try to identify this man. Who is this man of sin? Well, there are a number of different theories that have been suggested. One is a particular person, and that particular person in the minds of some would be a Roman ruler. Caesar Nero was one that was thought because he was such a terrible ruler. But, but there are a few things here about Nero that don't fit. In fact, none of the Roman rulers... Now, there are some things that do fit. Roman rulers eventually claimed deification. They claimed they were gods. But there are some other things that don't quite match up here. They didn't try to be miracle workers. They didn't try to um, oppose everything about worshiping any god uh, at all. And so some of those things don't, don't work. Some have suggested that this was the devil himself. But the problem with that is that as we read a little bit further, this son of sin or son of perdition or man of sin is energized by the devil. He does his evil deeds by the power of the devil, and so it wouldn't be the devil. The devil doesn't do his works by the power of the devil, in other words. This is someone who's infused with that. Some people think it is, a, it is simply a personification of of evil. A personification means giving a human the qualities uh, of an object or, or an idea. And the example I gave you is my wife is the personification of patience. In other words, if you could look in the dictionary and there was a picture for patience, there's Janice's picture be right there. Uh, with me anyway. Uh, but, but So there are people who think, well, that's a percent. But, but it doesn't seem to fit well. And so someone has suggested that this is the papacy. That is, a, the, the line of popes that, of the Catholic Church, that this would fit them. In fact, Wayne Jackson, who is a very excellent Bible student, takes this approach that it is the, the, the Catholic hierarchy. Uh, and, and he would say that, that was true because of where they placed themselves. And, but but the, the truth of the matter is, in Catholicism, I, I don't think you would say that the Pope claims to be God. He, he claims to be the representative of God. And there are people who, of course, give him a great honor and almost treat him like a deity. But but he doesn't really claim to be God, and he himself does not claim to work miracles. In fact, the only time he claims to speak uh, 
infallibly or uh, is what's called ex cathedra from a certain position he claims to fee, speak infallibly. But, but not all the time. Uh, when he gives a speech about world conditions, he doesn't claim that that's infallible. And incidentally, many Catholics today don't consider him very infallible. Uh, they, they, they seem to contend. Okay, now I haven't told you anything yet. and Just hold on because I may not. Um, let's go back here for a moment to see how Paul describes the behavior of this man of sin. In verse 4 he says, This man of sin opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped. So in other words, he, he rises above every, everything and every object of worship, whether it's the true God or any other object of worship. He places himself as the ultimate God. But notice, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. There's a, a little bit of a, a, a problem in this, in that after the death of Jesus, the temple is never referred to as the temple of God. It, it never is. It's the temple of the Jews, but it's not the temple of God anymore, because God no longer has a connection to that Jewish temple. And that has caused some to think that he means that he's overly honored in the church. Because we read, of course, that we are the temple of God, um, that, that, that the church is the temple of God. And so there are some who think that whoever this would be would be one who would place himself in the highest position in the church and call himself God. Now, here's what's interesting in verse 5. He says, do you not remember when I was with you, I told you these things? This is not new information. He's already explained this to them. And unfortunately for you and me, we don't know exactly what he said to them the first time. We know what he says now, but we don't know what he said to them the first time. And... and and I guess it also shows the importance of reminders. He says, I'm reminding you, you already know this. I, I would say this, and I want you just to think about this as a possibility. It has been suggested that this seems to be something that would be of particular notice and, and concern to this immediate setting. And so not in some cases, to think about this as a distant thing or a worldwide thing, but a local thing. Now, that's going to have some problems, too, uh, because uh, we, uh, we're going to see some things that don't seem to fit in right. And that's the trouble with all this passage, is that about the time you think you've got it figured out, something else uh, shows that maybe you don't have it figured out. But, but Paul believed that he needed to remind them about something they'd already heard. Years ago, uh, one of our members, who's now not living, deceased, told me that I didn't need to preach about instrumental music and worship being wrong. 
And he said, the reason I didn't need to do that is everybody already knew that. He was wrong. <laughs> he was wrong. Not everybody knew it. And I could tell you the other part of it was he didn't necessarily think it was wrong. That's why he didn't want me to preach it. But I told him, I said, if you can tell me that no one will ever come into this church, ever place membership, ever be a part of this congregation, who has any concern about whether it's right or wrong, I won't preach it anymore. But I don't think you can do it. And he couldn't. Now, verse 6 says there's something else they knew. And now you know what is restraining. That becomes problematic. What is restraining? That he may be revealed in his own time. There was a restraint or a power until the right time of this man of sin being revealed. Something was keeping that man of sin back. And, and then verse 7 has another difficult expression. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only, now notice the change. He, masculine, he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. I don't know what translation you're using. Uh, the New King James has both of those lies. Is yours not capitalized or capitalized? Is he, in verse 7, capitalized or not capitalized? It is. No. See, some, some, some translators didn't want to capitalize that because capitalization usually in, indicates somebody divine, doesn't it? God. That's who we capitalize for he. So that would make it seem like he, he, God, somehow restrains and will do so until he, God, is taken out of the way. Well, it's hard to imagine God being taken out of the way or removed. And so it may be that could be a combination of two things. Maybe it shouldn't be capitalized either time. Or maybe the first should be capitalized and the second shouldn't. Because the he, the second he, could be the one who is causing the problem. The man of sin. So this is the first time in verse 7 that he who restrains is used. In verse 8 he says, And when the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. So when he when the restraint is removed, the lawless one will be revealed, but but the Lord will slay him. It, his fate is assured, he will be destroyed. And incidentally, the idea of with the Lord's breath is likely an indication of how easy that would be. You know, you've seen examples and analogies of just blowing something over because it's very fragile. And that seems to be the way it's used. Not that his breath will kill him, but that he will simply kill him easily as if he breathes on him. Then in verse 8, the lawless one will be revealed, the Lord will consume, and so on. Uh, but it says, with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. 
And so what it sounds like, if you're following this, is maybe better than me, that this one will not be destroyed until the Lord's return. And that would mean it would be a continuing power. And that's one of the reasons why people like Wayne Jackson say that he believes this is uh, the, the, the papacy because he says it will continue until Christ comes again. R Roman rulers didn't continue. Uh, personalities didn't. I mean, you can't think of a person in history who continued. They all died and Christ still hasn't come again. I'm going to mention this somewhat hesitantly because I know that most commentators would not even consider this a possibility, especially since it's clear that generally Paul in all of this is talking about the Lord's second coming. In other words, when he will come at the end of time. There are some statements in the Old Testament that talk about God's coming or the Lord's coming. And those statements sometimes indicate coming in judgment. Not necessarily the second coming of Christ, but God coming to judge. And I, I'm not sure that an argument could be made, but some might make an argument that what Paul was really saying is whoever this person was, if it's really a person who sets himself up as God, that he would be destroyed with the Lord's coming and judgment of him, not necessarily his second coming. But, as I mentioned, that would not generally be acceptable. Uh, in verse uh, eight, verse 8, he says that destroy with the brightness come. Verse 9, the coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders. Um, the, the, the power comes from Satan. Uh, there would be uh, signs. There would be uh, one, what are called lying wonders, and this likely indicates the, the miracles or the wonders were really counterfeit ones, not, not, not genuine because they're lying wonders, not true wonders. And then verse 10, And with all unrighteous deception among those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. The, the effect on men would be deception. But the deception is for those seemingly who are already perishing. And the question that would be asked then would be, why, decide, why deceive these people? They're already perishing. So they could remain lost. So they wouldn't find their way back to God. They did not, however, these people, it is said, did not receive the truth. And that means a deliberate refusal. They could have been saved had they received it. Verse 11, and for this reason, God would send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie. Now, again, keep in mind, these are people who have already refused the gospel. They, and because of their refusal, God will send them or allow this deception to come uh, so that they might uh, be justly condemned. Justly condemned. Verse 12. 
that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Be, be sure that you don't get this wrong. God is not condemning righteous people. He's not condemning people who are doing right. These are all unrighteous people who have refused the truth and they stay in error. Now, what about this strong delusion? Well, in what sense are they? does this happen? And, and an example that's been used is like how God dealt with Pharaoh. It is said two different ways. Pharaoh hardened his heart. God hardened his heart. Which is true. Both. Pharaoh hardened his heart. How did God harden his heart? By giving him opportunities to do right. And when he refused those opportunities, he hardened his heart. And in a sense, God did too. By giving him those opportunities which he personally refused to accept. Who is the man of sin? I, I don't have an answer. I'm sorry, I don't have an answer. I don't know. I do know this, the teaching is clear that he's not going to win, he's going to lose, and God's going to destroy him. But to try to find a person that fits that, or a system that fits that, to me seems very difficult to do. You can come up with lots of ideas, but almost every one of those ideas has some flaw in it. And that's why there's no universal agreement. There's much disagreement about this. Very little universal agreement. Okay, the remainder of the chapter, very quickly, is taken up in an, exhort an exhortation again to stand fast. Paul just feels like he's got to keep on saying this. And so he says in verse 13, We are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification, by the Spirit and belief of the truth. We, verse 13, would indicate Paul and Silvanus and Timothy all together. We are bound to give thanks for you. And God chose you, he said, because God chose you from for salvation. How did he choose them? Did he choose them before they were born, as Calvinists would say? Or those who believe in predestination? Did God select those who would be saved before they were ever born and say they've got to be saved? If he did that, then you also have to admit that he did not select all to be saved. Therefore, he chose for people to be lost. That doesn't fit in well with the scriptures, does it? God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. The scriptures say God didn't want people to be lost. And if he chose people to be lost, then he did want them lost. But we know that he didn't. Now, verse 14 clarifies better. To which he called you by our gospel. How did God call you to be saved? Through the gospel. You heard the message for the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. How? When you read the pages of the New Testament after the church begins, how are people called? They hear the gospel and they respond to the call. And then verse 15. Therefore, brethren, stand fast again. 
and hold the traditions which you were taught, whether by word or our epistle. The, the word traditions or tradition are used, uh, word is used in two different ways in the Bible. One means human traditions. One means divine traditions. And Paul is not saying you need to hold on to our human traditions. He's saying you hold on to the teachings, the traditions from God, which God handed down by word and epistle. And incidentally, Paul then would encourage the belief that what they wrote needed to be followed. One just suggestions, but needed to be held on to. And then the final two verses, and now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and our God the Father who has loved us and given us everlasting consolation and good hope by grace comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. This is Paul's prayer for them, that they would be comforted and that God would help them to be established, to be standing strong in both their speech and in their practices. Okay, we've got a little bit of time. Let me stop here for a moment, and maybe you have some thought or idea or question that you want to propose. I don't pretend that I can answer every question for sure, but any of you see anything here that uh, is so clear that you have to share it with us? Well, good. We're all in the same boat anyway. On the back side of your lesson sheet, there are some questions and things to consider. We talked a little bit about these last week. How can, how do false teachings shake our faith? Well, when you replace truth with error, that's what shakes your faith. When you accept something that's false, it's going to affect your life. It can't help but affect your life. And then the second question we've talked about, the reference to man of sin is more understandable to the Thessalonians than to us. Why? Because they were living very close and Paul had explained it to them already. Now, some, some say this, and, and I didn't mention this earlier. Paul is not using really clear, direct language here, is he? I mean, the, these are statements that are I don't want to call them nebulous, but they're, they're uh, somewhat reserved. They're not open. He doesn't say, you've got to be a careful about Nero or you've got to be careful about a coming pope. He doesn't say that. And it may be that that was because it would not have helped it, it, even if he could have named the person who is involved in this. It wouldn't have helped them. It may have caused them greater problems. John writes that way in the book of Revelation. We know that. Okay. Well, our young people are already coming in. Thanks for being here tonight. We'll finish in two weeks. Uh, thank you for your patience. Incidentally, you're welcome to study Second Thessalonians 2. We have some commentaries in the library. I don't know how many of them be helpful to you, but you're welcome to to use any of them that you think could help.